last week, uh, last week we told the story of uh, Moses, Aaron, the people, and a golden calf. I'd like to go back to the Old Testament with a little more about heavy metal. If you would turn with me to Numbers chapter 21. That joke was funnier than it got credit for. Numbers chapter 21. So this, uh, this, is, uh, uh, this is a few years past the story of the golden calf. This is a few years past the giving of the Ten Commandments, which started, if I'm remembering them correctly, thou shalt have no other gods before me, and you shall not make any graven image. You shall not carve or manufacture or, or, or in any way take, take something that is not real and try to represent something that is real, right? And, and that's, that's the prohibition against idol making, right? This is the first and second of the commandments. And a few years later, we are here in Numbers chapter 21, and it's not a story about idolatry. It's a story about God's protection and God's rescue. And it goes like this. It says in um, Numbers 21.1, When the Canaanite king of Arad, who ruled in the Arid southern plain, heard that the Israelites were coming on the Atharim road, he fought against Israel and took some of them captive. Then Israel made a solemn promise of the Lord and said, If you give this people into our hands, we will completely destroy their city. The Lord heard the voice of Israel and handed the Canaanites over. They completely destroyed them and their cities. So the name of the place is called Hormah. They marched from Mount Or on the Red Sea road around the land of Edom. The people became impatient on the road. The people spoke against God and Moses. Now, now I, I'm not, this is not a sermon about Thanksgiving, but I'd like to pause, move off my notes for just a second, and, uh, and remind us that the significance of Thanksgiving and the, and the grounding of Thanksgiving is our ability to remember stuff. Like you, you can't be thankful if you can't remember stuff. And here's the classic text for it. And, and I understand that a few years have passed, but, but, but no amount of time should erase from their memories what God had done for them. One, one, one more time, I'm going to read it. It says, it says, the people spoke against God and Moses. Just, just a real quick like, summary for me. What, what had God and Moses done for the people just a couple years back? Anybody want to remember? Where were the people a few years ago? Anybody? They were where? In Egypt, and their status was slaves. Okay, right. So, so just real quick, that the people that are fussing about God and Moses and speaking against God and Moses and impatient with God and Moses right now, those same people were enslaved in Egypt just like, like, like just 20 minutes ago. But now they've forgotten, and this is what they say. Why did you bring us up from Egypt to kill us in the desert? Where there is no food or water, and then this is the best, and we detest this miserable bread, right? Now, j- just, just real quick, and I know some of y'all use them, and it's real cool, and I've been using something similar to it. Um, uh, it's called food home delivery, right? Anybody into that? You know, you don't raise your hand. Um, uh, but, but, but for years, Domino's like, could find our way to my house growing up, right? I mean, and, and we still do that kind of stuff, you know, you know that kind of thing. Um, before there was ever an app on your phone, 
God was delivering manna every stinking morning to these ungrateful Israelites in the desert. And what do they say? We detest this free food that has kept us alive that we had nothing to do with. We didn't have to prepare. We didn't have to bake. We didn't have to clean up afterwards. We detest it. So the Lord sent poisonous snakes among the people and they hit the people. Excuse me, bit the people. Many of the Israelites died. I'm going to let that verse just sort of stand on its own next time you want to fuss about what God does in the way of providing us with bread. The people went to Moses and said, we've sinned. This is repentance and confession. For we spoke against the Lord and you. Pray to the Lord so that he will send the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, make a poisonous snake and place it on a pole. Whoever is bitten can look at it and live. Moses made a bronze snake and placed it on a pole. If if a snake bit someone, that person could look at the bronze snake and live. This, this indeed is the word of God for we the people of God and we say together, thanks be to God. It's a story of of God in the end providing rescue for the the people, right? right? Because because they they acted out and sinned, and there are consequences for sin, and the consequences of sin are what? Death, right? I think Romans chapter 1 or 2 or so, rages of sin is death. I mean, that's what's happening in this story. And then God says, but nevertheless, I'm going to give you a rescue plan. Moses, make this, hold it up, people look at it, and they're saved. And this is the story. We've spent spent a couple of months now, going back to the 1st of October, folks read through the book and we've been teaching about it, learning from 1st John about certainty, this is how we know, in the midst of chaos, about about love and grace and, and, and how to care for each other and how to care for ourselves. And last week, out of nowhere, it ended with these words. Little children, little children, guard yourselves against idols. 1 John chapter 5, verse 21. See, the world would push us to carry the good that we've received out from the light and move it back into the shadows and turn it into something bad. Hey, here's the bread, but now I'm miserable over it. Hey, here's your care, but now it's not good enough. Hey, here's your security, but now, but now I want more of it. We have this tendency, and it's called sin, to convert something that was meant for good and turn it into something that's bad. And last week, and, I, and I, I need to do a little repenting myself, I got the sermon much better at the 11 o'clock service, but at the 9 o'clock service, I felt like I just like really was fussy at you guys, and I mean like all of you guys, and, and, I, and I didn't mean to do that. So um, I confess that I don't have a problem if you've got big boats with even bigger motors, all right? Everybody say amen, right? And I, I, I absolutely do not have a problem if you go shopping at Walmart. Here's, here's the, I, I, or, or Target. I think I said Target last week. I don't have a problem with that. I mean, and here's the truth, is that, is that mm, three or four hours after I had preached those sermons last Sunday morning, I was at Lowe's 
I really was, right? And everybody, I mean, all the guys in the room were like, uh-huh, yeah. I was at Lowe's, and I was walking up and down the aisles of Lowe's. Like, I went for one thing, you with me? Yeah? Steve, we talked, like, on the phone just after that. I went for one thing, and then I just sort of walked through, and I was like, oh, yeah, I could use that. And then I'm realizing, oh, yeah, I'm, like, bored on a Sunday afternoon, and here I am at Lowe's looking at all the stuff I could buy. But we are not evil people when we go buying things. Boats and Target and possessions are not evil by and large. I mean, there's some, there's absolutely some evil. But, but, But by and large, the majority of our purchase, the overwhelming majority of our purchase are not bad. I mean, oftentimes they are good and we mean them for good. They become bad when we take them from the place that God would have us to put them in and we move them to a place that we would much rather them be in. When we carry what God has given us from the light into the shadows... Or when we elevate a thing from from its place right down here to a place right up here, that is sin and that is idolatry and it is an abomination to the God who made us. And, and, And this is proven out by the story of the bronze serpent because the story is continued. You get to 2 Kings chapter 18, 2 Kings, like First and Second Kings and, and, and Chronicles afterwards, is this, is this, uh, is this history recorded. Uh, in, and actually, it, it takes specific forms, and it talks about the king and when they entered and, and who was the king on the other side, because at this point, the, the kingdom is now divided between the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, and it, and it records them both, and it gives us a little bit of genealogy, and then it says whether or not the king was a good king or a bad king, whether or not they did what was pleasing in the sight of the Lord or not, and then it begins to list some of the specific things they did that were right, and this is where we find ourselves in 2 Kings chapter 8. 18, Hezekiah, Ahaz's son, became king of Judah in the third year of Israel's king, Hoshea, Elah's son. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he ruled 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Abi. She was Zechariah's daughter. Hezekiah did what was right in the Lord's eyes. He's actually remembered in the Old Testament as one of the great kings, of one of the, uh, one of the kings that did, uh, uh, get, that, that did what was right in the eyes of the Lord more often than all of the others, and, 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 this is what, and this is what that's about. Just as his ancestor David had done, he removed the shrines. The shrines, apart from the temple, the shrines were outside of the central worship they were they were back in the how do do i say it they were back in the edges and and in the shrines what would happen is that the people would worship the one true god yahweh and then and and i'm not i'm not great with the language of gambling or betting but then they would they would they would place they would place their money on yahweh and then they would then they would enter into a side bet right they would say, they would say, I place, this is what happens in a shrine. This is what happens back then. I place my trust in you, God. But then, but then also, I need this fall's harvest to be big. And so I'm going to put a little over here on the side and I'm going to put it on this, this, this harvest, God, right? 
Or, 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 or I'm really counting on like grandkids, and so, so I'm, I'm going I'm to do like a fertility thing over here for the kid. You know, you know, whatever it is, I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm just going gonna, gonna gonna to spread my allegiance around. And it says that he took down the shrines. He smashed the sacred pillars, and he cut down the sacred pole. He also crushed the bronze snake that Moses made. Because up to that point, I went back and did the math on this, 600 years have passed since the time that God instructed Moses to make a poisonous snake and place it on a pole. 600 years have passed. It says the Israelites had been burning incense to it. And they even gave it a name. The snake was named Nehushtan. 600 years after God gave them a plan for salvation there in the wilderness when the snakes were to bite. And they've now turned it in the shadows into something that was evil. But first, John has told us that while we have this tendency to sin, taking that which is meant for good and using it for bad, we have the power because of Jesus to overcome sin. We have the power because of Jesus to not sin at all. That's, that's what First John says. And I believe that the first move, and we talked about this last week, is to be defensive, to pay attention to what triggers us. For the Israelites in the desert, it was boredom. And it's not clear that for the last 600 years of this story, what it was that caused them to begin worshiping this, this metal carved image of a snake on a pole. But if I were to take a guess, I wonder if it was nostalgia. You know, you know, the nostalgia that says, hey, the way our grandparents, grandparents, grandparents talked about that day and that season and that part of history, you know, where, where God showed up every day in the, in the pillar of smoke and at night he was, he was there in the pillar of cloud and it was God leading us and he, take, he took care of us. I mean, never mind that our great-great-great-grandparents were, were tired of the bread. It would be nice to go back to the time when it was simpler. Nostalgia. I mean, could it be that that serpent was being used by them to, to just hearken back to a day? I mean, could it be that there is a level of nostalgia that takes us to the place that where we take the good and turn it into the bad? I don't know what it is that triggers us. Boredom, nostalgia, pride, arrogance, scarcity. But the tendency to sin by hiding the things that we've received away from God instead of leaving them out in the light is the very thing that the Scriptures from the beginning to the end are pleading with us to stop doing.
And, and I think it's not enough for us to be on the defense. I think there's an element of going on the offense, of literally moving forward. And this is where, this is where the story of the bronze serpent gets redeemed. It's because even though that Hezekiah actually destroyed it there in the year 715 BCE, Jesus brings it back into the conversation. And he does so right next to one of the most, or maybe the most well-known verse in all the Scriptures. Turn with me to John chapter 3. In that nighttime conversation when the Pharisee Nicodemus, a Jewish leader, comes to Jesus and asks, how do we know who you are? Can you tell us who you are? And, and, and Jesus begins to answer, not in riddles, but, but to tell them one thing and he's misunderstanding it and hearing another. And then it gets to the point of the conversation where Jesus says, no one has gone up to heaven except the one who came down from heaven, the human one, also translated the Son of Man. And then Jesus does this. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so must the human one be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in Him will have eternal life. God so loved the world that He gave His only Son so that everyone who believes in Him won't perish but will have eternal life. God didn't send His Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him isn't judged. Whoever doesn't believe in Him is already judged because they don't believe in the name of God's only Son. This is the basis for judgment. The light came into the world. And people love darkness more than the light, for their actions are evil. There's a verse in 1 John that practically copies that word for word. All who do wicked things hate the light and don't come to the light for fear that their actions will be exposed to the light. Whoever does the truth comes to the light so that it can be seen that their actions were done in God. I believe to go on the offensive against idolatry is to do exactly what Jesus just said, is to come to the light. Is to make the move and take the fight against the idols, but not so that our strength would be on display, but to come closer to the one whose strength is more than enough. We don't need to fight idols. God will fight them for us. But, but here in this, this, this culmination of the gospel, John chapter 3, for God so loved the world, Jesus says that, that people have a choice and that some people are choosing to keep themselves and their stuff back in the darkness. And that's evil. 
What God wants is us to bring the stuff into the light. So what are you bringing into the light? And what are you hiding back in the shadows? Just, just for a second. All of this prompted me to, to, to go on a little search. It says, it says there, at, right at the end of John chapter 3, it says, so, so come into the light. And I was like, wow, that, that's a... That, that's like a that's like a that's like a it's like an image of us moving and i went and i looked up the word that would have meant that and i and i found um i found i found this he would have been speaking in aramaic which is a derivation of hebrew and then later on it had been okay never mind that's a bunch of mumbo jumbo there's a word in the bible it's the word karab it means to come near or draw close and it's used 281 times call rab and i thought that's a lot of times and i and i was done that's a lot of times 281 times that's going to convince all of us only to realize that that that's one word that means to draw close or come near but there's another word that means the exact same thing it's the word nagah these are hebrew words it means to come near and it's used 895 times and then I'm like, okay, well, if there's two words that mean the same thing, is there a possibility? And guess what? The answer is yes. There's a third word in the Old Testament Hebrew that means the exact same thing. It's the word all law, and it means to come up. It's, so it's, it's slightly different. It's, so it's draw near, come close, come up, and it's used 127 times. And so for those of you sharp on your feet and you're doing the math, it's like 1,303 times in just the Old Testament that words like draw near, come close, come up are used 1,303 times. But there's only 929 chapters in the entire Old Testament. Now, in the course of a day, how often do you use the phrase draw near? right? I can tell you, use it, you don't use it at all, right? How often do you use the phrase, come close? It, so this isn't a word like the, or of, or a, or am, or I, or you, or stinky face, right? words that we use at our house all the time, right? This isn't one of those common words. This is, this is a word that's not used in our everyday language all the time, but in the Bible, it's used at a rate of greater than once per chapter. Could it be that from the beginning to the end, the message of the scriptures is that God is pleading with us to draw close to him? To come near to him? And, Jesus says, to bring our stuff out of the shadows and into the light. Every time this word is used, there's an action that's associated with it. 
and of all of the actions associated with these words, the action that's used and referred to more than any other is the action of to come near, draw close, come up, and make an offering. if we want to go on the offensive towards idols, if we want to attack sin in our lives, God is telling us to draw close and literally offer our stuff to Him. You see, I, I think the brilliance of the tithe isn't so we can pay the bills. The brilliance of the tithe is to say that if I'll give back the first tenth out of what I've produced with my energy that you gave me, out of what I've made with my skills that you gifted me with, out of what I've created, out of what you've allowed me to create, if I'll give back the first tenth of it, I'm establishing and resetting that this, that this thing, that this, that this profit, that this product, that this, that this wealth, that any of whatever it is that it is, is not God to me. Because if I'll take it out of the shadows and bring it into the light, that's not idolatry. That's the worship of the one true God who made us and calls us to thanksgiving. Little children, be on guard against idols. Those things that were meant for good but we have turned to bad. Those things that we have elevated above their place. And those things even now that we have held back in the darkness. Bring them forward and draw close to God. Let's pray. from the story of a serpent that was meant for good and turned to bad and redeemed yet again by Jesus into good. Lord, we hear that your single desire for us is that we would draw close and trust you. And the idols of the world and the lies and the falsehoods and the fake that is trying to pull us away has no power in the light of your son Jesus. And every one of us 
has things that we have moved from good to bad, has things that we have hidden in the shadows. Every one of us stands guilty. of the very sin that you're referring. Lord, allow this moment for us to be freed from the weight, from the heaviness You've made us for something better. We draw close to you in prayer. Amen.